Well, good morning, church family. Um, before we jump into our text today, I just, I just want to take a take a brief moment to say um, how thankful I am for this past weekend. If you work with our Veritas uh, high school students, we spent uh, about not even 48 hours, about 36 hours together at, at our Elevate that we started about three years ago. It's just a time of intense discipleship, and, and this year we were honored to to hear the preaching from Pastor Casey at Ashland Community Church and Pastor Nate, and then now newly minted Pastor Joe Abdelgani from Ashland Community Church. And they were focusing on helping students and helping us all uh, understand what the will of God is for our life. And so it was a powerful time. I'm always encouraged when I'm around these students. They, they always want to... I don't even I'm getting emotional about this. But it is... It is amazing just to watch these students long to sing the praises together. We're singing together, and Robbie's like, you want to sing another one? And it's not even like, yeah. It's, yes, we want to sing together. They want to praise the Lord together. And I, I just want to say uh, thank you to you all who prayed. Thank you to you all who served. And thank you to a church who has committed uh, to reaching these students for Christ. And so, um, but I say that to say this is, I haven't slept much in the last two nights. Um, and so there's a battle going on inside of me. And the battle is between exhaustion and an energy drink. And we're about to see who's going to win. Um, but other than that, I'm going to do it in God's grace and with His strength. And so with that, I invite you to stand. And as you stand, make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel Chapter 2. And, in, and I'm simply going to read one verse. I have a whole sermon on one verse. So this is going to be the fastest sermon you've ever heard. After my last sermon, you're probably praising the Lord, I think. Um, but I'm just going to read one verse together. 1 Samuel 2.1 And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Let's pray. Father, I come before You. And Lord, may our prayer be the prayer of Hannah. May our heart exalt in You. May our horn be exalted in in you. Lord, as we, we've, we've already sung how you have won victory. May we understand that more clearly because of what your word teaches us today. And then may, us, may we leave here and live it out. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many of you know I lost my mom a couple years ago. And with she, she had battled dementia for uh, about three years. And as you know, there, there's just certain like moments that you, you, you have memories with, with family members. And my mom worked for uh, various kind of brokerage houses, I guess you call them. I don't know. Um, she, she started out working for Dean Witter. And then Dean Witter, I think, became um, Morgan Stanley. And then I think Morgan Stanley became Smith Barney. So I don't know who she ended up working for at the end. But one of the things I remember about her working there is whenever when I was a kid and we'd go visit, she had, she had these two things that would sit on her desk. 
and, and they were bronze, and one was a, a bear, and one was a bull. And they were heavy. I mean, they were heavy bronze uh, animals, right? And when I was little, my mom would kind of let me play with them. I don't really know if you could break them. They were so heavy. So, um, and they still, they, they, they're still in my father's house today. And I always wondered why mom just had a, a bear and a bull on her desk at work. And she never really told me until I, I, was, I think I was probably in college when she described this to me. Um, and she said, well, uh, when it comes to the stock market, in a, in a bear market, uh, the, the stocks are going down. And when a bear attacks, he swipes downward. Okay. And in a, in, a, in a stock market where the stocks are rising, it's a bull market. Because when a bull attacks, he charges, he drops his head low, and then he raises up. And so he raises his horn to defeat his enemy. And I remember that, and I remember her saying this. And so whenever I come and I read this, I think about that. He raises his horn to defeat his enemy. Now, as, as we've looked, as we've been in this, this series called Things, now this is the fourth week, we have seen God demonstrating His glory, demonstrating His love, demonstrating His grace through a number of things. We, we talked about dust, and we saw, we saw how God demonstrates His glory through the stars. And last week, even through earthquakes. And we've taken kind of jumps in the biblical story to do that. And so the, the step we're taking today, we step into uh, a bit of history of Israel. And where we find Israel at this moment in our text is with no horn, no son, no king, no victory. And so we come to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is, is, is coming to the, uh, the time towards the end of this, this time of Judges, the book of Judges. Israel had finally entered the land. They were set in the land, and, and they had begun to forget what God had done for them. They began to, to seek after other things. Eventually, God would send judgment. They would repent, and God would raise up judges in order to set them free. But as this, this cycle of, of repentance and, and grace and judges, as it continues, Israel keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, we get to the very end of Judges, and this is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we come to, to first, and we come to second Samuel, and the question that's being screamed at us is, who will be the true king of Israel? Who will be the true king of Israel? But we're going to see is we're going to see very clearly God's sovereignty over Israel, God's sovereignty over history, and God's sovereignty to raise up a king. And by the time we get to the end of 2 Samuel, it is clear that David is the king. But Samuel is, comes to the end of this time of judges, a time of, of chaos for Israel, a time of confusion for Israel, a time of fruitlessness for Israel. In First and Second Samuel, it's it's a pretty majestic. It's a majestic story. It's, it's two majestic books. 
It talks about political struggle and intrigue. There's major shifts in, in religious and political life for Israel. It is, there's world historical epoch-making events. A lot of the major events that take place are in Shiloh, in Zion, and on battlefields, and in the royal houses of Saul and David, in cities like Ramah and Jerusalem. But 1 Samuel starts with a family. Starts with a family. A family and a woman from the backwaters or the backwards of Ephraim. And specifically, a woman named Hannah. And Hannah, as we know from, from the, the text, she, that just means favored one. Favored one. And we know, uh, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, that she, she's favored by her husband. Her husband loves her. And because he loves her, he gives her a double portion. A double portion over against the, the other wife that her husband has. Penina. But Hannah's lived reality doesn't feel very favored. See, she, she's barren. And we're introduced to this family through a lineage. You can look back at the first one or two verses of chapter 1, and there's just a list of names. And you say, oh, it's just a list of names. But there's a real sense where this list of names is, is tying this family back to the Abrahamic family. To this Abraham that, that Pastor David preached on just a couple weeks ago, where God is going to promise to bless this family with, with offspring as many as the stars of the sky. And, 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 and through this family, the, the nations, the world will be blessed. In other words, there's a promise of fruitfulness. And a fruitfulness that will bless the nation. But it's a fruitfulness that seems impossible. Abraham's old. Sarah's old. In a real sense, Sarah's barren, or Hannah's barrenness ties her back to the patriarchs. Abraham was married to Sarah. Sarah is barren. Isaac is married to Rebecca. Rebecca struggles with barrenness. Jacob is married to Rachel. Rachel initially struggles with barrenness. And so what we see in Genesis is that women's barrenness is not just only about kind of an emotional family problem. The barrenness that, that women struggle with in Genesis and beyond, it, it, it's a threat to God's promise of an abundant seed. Barrenness is significant, is significant, is significant ultimately because God's promise to rise up a seed of woman to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15 depends on women having children. That was the seed promised to Abraham. But as long as Sarah was barren, the promise was not to be fulfilled. Without a son, there is no future for Israel. Thus, we come to Hannah's sadness, and it's much more than just a self-pity. It's also indicative of her faith and her longing for a Messiah whose coming may be thwarted by her infertility. Further, God, Israel is God's bride. And so if Israel is fruitless, what is going on? And so, in a real sense, Israel, like Hannah, is the favored one of Yahweh. How indeed can it be barren? Now, we can look at Scripture and we can 
kind of piece together why Israel might be buried. Because God tells us in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and following, this is, this is uh, His promise. He says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you, shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you, shall you be in your basket, in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground. The increase of your herbs and the young of the flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. And cursed shall you be when you go out. Then, and so Israel has, has been unfruitful. They have been unfaithful. And their unfaithfulness has led to fruitlessness. And, and listen, they've been so unfruitful. If you look back at uh, the, the first chapter of 1 Samuel, Eli, who is, a, who is a priest, he sees a woman, a faithful woman, praying to the Lord. And his assumption is not, wow, look at the faithfulness of her prayer, not looking at the passion of her commitment. It's, well, she's drunk. That, that's, that's how distorted Israel has become. That the priest sees a woman praying and just assumes she's drunk. This is where we find Israel. Broken and barren. But something's about to change. A child is going to be born. And in, in the first chapter we see Hannah, she's approaching the temple and we find Eli sitting at, at the doorpost. It may seem like an insignificant detail, but if we look back at, at, at Genesis 18, verse 10, when the angels come and they, and they visit Abraham, where do we find Sarah? We find Sarah sitting at the doorpost of the tent. When we, when we look to the, to the exodus of the people of Israel, the people have to pass through a blood-soaked doorpost when they move from slavery to new life. And what we begin to see it is that God is the one who opens the doorways to life. And, and Hannah prays, and her prayer is just a recognition of God's sovereignty over life. And so for her, it's, it's a prayer of impotence. It's a prayer of powerlessness. Recognizing that there's nothing she can do about her fruitlessness. There's nothing she can do about her barrenness. She probably tried. But she recognizes in verse 6 of chapter 2, she says, the Lord kills and brings life. And she tells Eli earlier that she's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She recognizes her powerlessness, but appeals to the powerful one. Isn't that the nature of prayer? Weak, feeble, helpless people crying out to the only being in the entire cosmos who is, who is not dependent on anything? And her prayer is answered. Her renewal begins with prayer, as does ours. But not only is she barren, she has a rival. She has a rival. Peninnah. 
Elkanah, her husband, he, she, he has another wife, as I mentioned. Now, young men, if you're out there looking for a wife, don't get it in your head that it's a good idea to go look for two. This is not descriptive. This is, this is not prescriptive. It is descriptive, okay? This is not a good thing. But Peninnah, unlike Hannah, it says, has many sons and daughters. She's, she's abundantly fruitful. And Peninnah mocks Hannah because of it. Hannah, this barren one, who was so oddly faithful that, that she looked drunk when she prayed. She has a rival in Peninnah. And so a real sense in Elkanah's family, in Hannah, we see a microcosm of where we find Israel. Israel is barren. Israel has rivals all around them. And so as we step back and we, we look at Israel from the time of Judges through the end of 1 Samuel, we see just a fruitful Israel, a fruitless Israel with, with rivals both within and without. And yet with Hannah, something's about to change. God answers and gives Hannah a son, and she names that son Samuel, which just means heard of God, because she asked of the Lord, and the Lord heard her cry. And Hannah says, if you give me this son, I will, I will give him to you, Lord. And she commits to him and says that no razor will ever touch his head. He, he's a Nazarite. He's going to serve God, but outside of the priesthood. So he's a Nazarite. And, and Hare in the Old Testament is over and over again kind of referred to as a crown. Proverbs chapter 20, the glory of an old man is his gray hair. Psalm 68 says, talks, speaks of a, a man's hairy crown. Now I'm not sure what that says about Ashland pastors and staff, but hair is, is a symbol of a crown. And so as the Nazarites are, are to, to finish their vow, they, they kind of wear the crown, this, this, this kind of symbolic of the crown that the priest, high priest would wear, but as they finish their Nazarite vow, they're to, to shave that hair and lay it on the altar as a burnt peace offering. In other words, throwing their crown down before the Lord. But Hannah says that no razor will ever touch the hair of Samuel. And so God gives Hannah, the desire of her heart, He gives her Samuel a son. And she's with him long enough to wean him. And she takes him and she gives him to Eli. Eli becomes, in a real sense, his adopted father. Samuel is transferred from his father's house to Eli. And Eli will now raise Samuel. But what we're going to see is that in what this begins in First and Second Samuel, it's kind of a series of replacements, a series of different, better sons. Samuel would come to Eli, and eventually Samuel would replace Eli, Eli's wicked sons. And then the, the people would cry out and say, give us a king, and Saul would replace Samuel. But Samuel was not God's anointed. And so, and so Saul would be repl replaced by David. And so what we're beginning to see is, is Israel needs a different, better son. 
And so, Hannah and Sa- so in Hannah and Samuel, we see a picture of Israel's great need and God's great answer. And because of that, Hannah is driven to praise as a result. And so we go from no horn, no son, no king, and no victory to a horn, a son, a king, a victory. And, and Hannah's prayer starts what we just read. My heart exalts in the Lord. Hannah starts with herself, but she doesn't stay there. She, she starts with her own lived experience, but she expands it. And in the very next verse, she, she moves to the sovereignty of the Lord. She says in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And she recognizes the Lord is doing something bigger than her. And because He is sovereign, verse 3, we have no grounds to boast. And the Lord in His sovereignty, He's he's bringing about a reversal. In verse 4, we see that the mighty are broken and the feeble are strengthened. In verse 5, we see that the, the full are now hungry and the hungry are now full. In verses 7 and 8, we see a reversal of fortunes. We see the rising up of the poor from dust and ash, and now now they're being seated with princes. Verse 9, we see faithful ones will be protected and wicked ones cut off. Hannah recognizes that God is moving beyond her personal experience. God is meeting Israel's need. And so she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. The very center of who she is exalts in the Lord. And then she says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. A horn. The very thing a horned animal uses to bring victory. Victory over rivals. The very thing a male horned animal uses to ensure his fruitfulness. Horn is a powerful symbol of victory. And Hannah's horn is a horn of victory. God heard her personal prayer, gave her victory over her barrenness, over her fruitlessness. He's the only one who could have done it because He is the one that brings life. But only that, it brings victory over her rival. Peninnah had mocked her. He had, she had shamed her. And the Lord brought her salvation from that scorn. Just like we will see, David brings victory over one who mocks. Over a giant Philistine named Goliath. The symbol of all of this is a horn. A horn. Now, should this really surprise us? Because if we look back at at biblical history, we've seen horns and victory before. You just look at Joshua chapter 6, and this is when the people enter the land. And they walk up, and the first thing they see is this giant city with these giant fortified walls. And this is poor little Israel. They're not trained soldiers. They don't have dynamite 
They don't, they, don't, they don't have the weapons to bring down this mighty wall. And God comes to Joshua and says, here's what I want you to do. For a week, for six days, I just want you to walk around the, the city walls one time. And on the seventh day, I want you to walk around seven times. And then once you walk around seven times, I want you to blow, blow a ram's horn. Take a horn and you, and you carve it out and you, and you make it an instrument. And then God tells Joshua, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him, and the whole thing ends like this. The wall fell down flat. As the horns are still ringing in their ear, as the ground is still rumbling from the falling of the wall, Israel had to recognize that the victory is not of their own making, it was of the Lord. Which offers no room for arrogance. Which is what, which is what Hannah prays. But it's also what a psalm tells us. Psalm 75, verses 4 and following. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. It is the Lord who raises horns. It is the Lord who brings victory. And Hannah recognizes this, and she bookends her prayer with horns. With horns. Look at verse 10 of her prayer. Verse 10 of 1 Samuel. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His kings and exalt the horn of His anointed. And that word there, anointed, is the same word that we eventually get our word, Messiah. Chosen one. Anointed one. And in First and Second Samuel, we do see a king anointed. As I mentioned, Paul, the people pick Saul as king. But all the while, God has, God has a shepherd boy that he's going to strengthen, that he's going to rise up. And God tells Samuel that I want you to go, and I want you to find this shepherd boy. I want you to go to Jesse in Bethlehem and find this boy. But when you go, I want you to take a horn, and I want you to fill this horn with oil. And so, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13, verse 13, this is what we read. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, brother uh, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The king is anointed with a horn. And David is anointed from the very symbol of victory. 
Ultimately, Hannah's horn is lifted up because God lifts up the horn of His anointed and she is lifted up in that. And we get to the last few uh, books or chapters of the, of the book of Samuel and, and, and Saul has tried again and again to kill David, but David finally experiences victory over Saul and his kingdom is established. And this is what David says in 2 Samuel 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. And David later puts almost the same exact words to song in Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my seal, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Not only is Hannah's song bookended by horns, of victory and salvation by the Lord, but the books of Samuel are bookended by the Lord's horn of victory and salvation. And so here in Hannah, in first in David, in first and second Samuel, in Joshua and Jericho, we see the Lord showing us where victory and salvation come. And the symbol of it all is a horn. But just like what's happening in Hannah. There's something bigger going on in 1st and 2nd Samuel. There's something bigger going on than 1st and 2nd Samuel. Something bigger than even that. Something cosmic is being communicated in this symbol of a horn. Because it's not just about a horn. It's not just about a son. It's not just about a king. It's not just about a victory. No, it ultimately is about the horn the Son, the King, the Victory. And so as we move forward in redemptive history, we see how it only takes one generation from David to Solomon for Israel to forget where their victory lays. And after a long history of a pattern of of rebellion, we're going to find Israel herself again in this moment of kinglessness without a king. And another even more bleaker time of fruitlessness, of hopelessness, when they hadn't heard the voice of the Lord for centuries. In the midst of this kinglessness, and this fruitlessness, and this hopelessness, we're introduced to a family. A family with two women who were cousins. Elizabeth, the first woman, like Hannah, is barren. Like Hannah, she's feeling the weight of that reality in light of the promised seed of Israel. Yet, her and her husband, Zechariah, are both described as, as righteous before God. And yet, Elizabeth is also described as, as barren and advanced in, in years. We know the story. Zechariah, a member of the priesthood, he's, he's offering sacrifices one day. And an angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him, Elizabeth, this one who is advanced in years, this one who is barren, she's going to have a child. What does John, or what does is, what is Zechariah say? How can this be? How can this be? And immediately, his mouth is closed. 
He is silenced. He is made mute. But the angel doesn't stop because the angel tells him that he will be a Nazarite, that he will take no wine, he will take no strong drink, that he will be great before the Lord, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. And John, your, and, and John, your son, Zechariah, will prepare a way for another, just like Samuel did a thousand years before. But Zechariah is silenced. He's silenced for nine months until the time for Elizabeth to have the baby comes. And she has the baby and friends or family are there. And are like, what are we going to name this newborn joy, this, this boy? And they all say, we're going to name him after his dad. And, and, and Zechariah is sitting there waving his hands in the silence, getting their attention. And he literally has to write on a tablet and he writes out, J-O-H-N. John. And Zechariah's voice immediately returns to him. And upon its return, he prophesies. And he prophesied what Pastor Nate read earlier. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. This one son, as Pastor Nate read, is the one preparing a way for the son, the horn of salvation that brings victory over death, salvation from and forgiveness for sin. This is the only place in all the New Testament where we see Jesus referred to as the horn. But it has been predicted. Psalm 132, verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. John is to communicate about the horn, the son, the salvation, the victory. But there's another woman in this family. Her name is Mary. And before John is ever born, Mary visits Elizabeth. And Mary walks into the house to see her cousin. And John, Elizabeth's womb, already filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy at this miraculous child that is in the womb of Mary. A miraculous son conceived of the Holy Spirit. The son that John will point to. The son that will ultimately supplant and replace John to John's joy. Elizabeth, having felt John leap for joy, tells Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Fruit out of fruitless Israel. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth is, is telling Mary what she already knows from the angel, that you carry the horn, the son, the king, the victory. Like Hannah, Mary is driven to praise. I looked around while we were singing Christmas songs and some of you had odd looks on your faces. 
And as I was talking to Nate earlier in the week about this, I said, Nate, we've got to sing a Christmas song. He said, I'm going to sing two. So Nate always does stuff way over to the top, right? And I appreciate that because it is, it, this is what is going on. The horn, the sun, the king, the victory is happening. And it's happening from Mary by the power of God. And as Mary begins to hear this from Elizabeth, very much like Hannah, she begins to praise. And she sings a song, and this song is in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And this is what it says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in, my God, in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud with the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Mary's song should sound so familiar to Hannah's prayer. The reversal is coming. Mary in her womb has the promised one that will bring about the reversal, the victory. She has the sun, the horn, the king, the victory. Now, it's not going to be a victory that we're kind of used to understanding, used to thinking about. It's going to be a unique victory. It's going to be a different type of victory. And in fact, as we, as we look back down in, in redemptive history, we see, this, we see this victory whispered at. Just a whisper. Genesis chapter 22. This is a story of God telling Abraham to take this son that he was promised and, and, and carry him up to the mountain. And I want you to sacrifice your son, God tells Abraham. So Abraham gets up and it says early in the morning. And he takes Isaac up to the hill. And he lays, and, and Isaac even says, uh, where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham says, God will provide. But he gets up there and he lays Isaac down and he literally unsheathes the knife. And then verse 13 says this, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The very symbol of that ram's victory leads to that ram being a substitute for Isaac. The place where we see strength and victory 
inescapably linked with death. And the result? Salvation. Salvation. And we hear that whisper. But we look forward now. We look forward again in redemptive history. And that whisper, it becomes a shout. As, as, as Jesus is coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John, who is the one to proclaim about Jesus, he says this, not quietly, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The horn of salvation will come through the death of Jesus Christ. But oh, that's not the end. In His death, Jesus wins victory because God rises Him out of the tomb as the horn of salvation. It is God who raises horn. Just like Hannah said, the Lord kills, the Lord brings life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. Sin and death has no victory because it is Jesus' victory. He is the horn of salvation. And so as we, as we close out our series on things, like I mentioned, we, we talked about dust, and we talked about stars, and we talked about earthquakes, and now we're, we're, we're thinking about horns. When we think about this, I, I want you to feel it. I want you to see it, church. And maybe you're thinking, well, this is great. This is interesting how the Bible is tying this all together. And, 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 and Adam, you, you've talked about horns here, and you've talked about horns there, and we've seen how it is in Christ, but man, my life right now, it is, it is spinning out of control. There are things going on that you can't imagine, that I'm struggling with, that I'm anxious about. The anxiety is, is filling me up. But here's what I want you to see, just from the, the few verses we looked at today. God is painting a story more beautiful than you can ever imagine. And if you're in Him, you are part of that story. So your circumstance, your struggle, what you're going through, God is making something beautiful of it. Because He is sovereign. And because He is sovereign, you can rest in that. So allow your anxiety, allow those burdens to be swallowed up in the flood of God's sovereignty. But also, I want you, I want you to do this. I want us all to be amazed at the length of God, at the lengths that God is willing to go to show us His love for us in the Gospel. Be amazed at the lengths that God is willing to go to show us His love for us in the Gospel. We can see it in dust. We can see it in stars. We can see it in earthquakes. We can see it in horns. We can see it from a hug from your, your husband or your wife or your child. You, you, can, you, can, you can eat a glorious piece of fried chicken and you can taste the goodness and it should remind you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And He proves it by lifting up the horn of salvation, His Son, Jesus Christ, for you. Feel it. 
Believe it. Fight for it. He's won the victory. And He offers it to anyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we thank You that the victory is not ours. It is Yours. You make it happen and You still change people. You still change us. You still make the fruitless fruitful. You make the dead come alive in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray we would live that truth out. We would proclaim that truth boldly. It changes the world. Please allow it to change us this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.